Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Why don't we begin uh, now in a word of prayer, and this prayer is taken from the Liturgy of the Hours for tonight, for the Feast of the Presentation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty, ever-living God, we humbly implore your majesty that just as your only begotten Son was presented on this day in the temple, in the substance of our flesh, so by your grace we may be presented to you with minds made pure, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening is Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. After a Catholic upbringing, Dr. Stephen Smith spent some years in evangelical megachurches, and earned his M.A. at Wheaton College Graduate School and Evangelical University. Returning to the Catholic Church in 2000, Dr. Smith earned a Ph.D. from Loyola University of Chicago, specializing in New Testament and early Christianity. Dr. Smith frequently speaks in parishes, seminaries, and universities, and has appeared on EWTN and Catholic Radio. He is the author of numerous essays and two books, his most recent being, the House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testament. I'm really looking forward to reading this one. Uh, Dr. Smith and his wife have two children and live in rural Maryland. We're delighted to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Stephen C. Smith. Thanks, as always. Great to see you. Um, welcome, everybody. And I'm, um, I'm next to um, one of my favorite things, which is the crucifix. And this particular one, I'm just going to hold it up nice and large so you can see it, is actually from Jerusalem. It has a little piece of the Rock of Calvary in it. It's got a seal for its authenticity and other uh, relics of the Holy Land as well. And we want to certainly stay next to uh, our Lord as we, as we proceed. Um, let me just get my, back my full screen here. Um, I've got Maria, and I just need to get myself. So maybe... I uh, just need a little bit of help here from Daniel or Maria. I'm small, and I need to be a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. You went up the uh, either speaker view or gallery. View. Okay, I think I think we're good. I think we're good. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, hopefully, you all have one of the handouts. Uh, I know that Daniel and the team have been putting these out because we're going to go through a ton of scripture in these next two weeks. This study is called "The Kingdom of God: A Study in the Gospel of Luke." what we're going to try to do is try to understand two things. Number one, what is St. Luke trying to tell us in this particular gospel? And then the second question that's been given to us is what about this notion of the kingdom of God? What does that mean and how in particular does it come in in the gospel of St. Luke? 
Uh, now, just as we get started here, again, tonight is a beautiful feast day, this evening of the presentation of our Lord. I want to say just a couple of things as we begin about the presentation itself to get us in the right spiritual framework. There are four songs or canticles in the Gospel of Luke. You'll find them in Luke chapter 1 and 2, and I want to just urge everybody to grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, just find the nearest Protestant and grab it from him or her. Um, that's a very few Bible jokes I know, so you got to laugh at them. Uh, but we have um, the Magnificat in Luke 1, 46 to 55, of course, Mary's song, the Benedictus, the Gloria, and the Nuc Demitis. And it's that song of Simeon, the Nuc Demitis, that is right in the presentation. It's Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and following. The song comes in in verse 29. I just want to read it as we begin. You know the story, but let's reflect on the theology in, in the canticle. Luke 2.29. And in Simeon's um, moment of delight and joy in holding the Lord in his arms, he replies, Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. Lord, now let thy servant depart in peace. According to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And that word uh, depart in verse 29 is very interesting. It is actually the word exodus, which means to, to, to go out, to depart as in the exodus from Egypt, or to die. So what he's really telling us is that his life has been fulfilled because as this holy and faithful Jew and a person of the Old Testament period, he has been given a special revelation from God to see the coming Messiah, and in fact, he's holding him in his arms. The other thing I would say about this passage is that we get a glimpse of Luke's Christology right off the bat, because the Gospel of Luke begins in the temple, and it ends in the temple. It literally begins right after his prologue, which we're going to look at in depth tonight, but in chapter, uh, chapter 1, we get the story of Zechariah, who's the father of, of course, John the Baptist. He himself is a priest. I've been asked if he's a high priest. I don't think that he is. It doesn't say he is or isn't, but the clues in the text do not suggest that he is. And Luke is such a great historian that if Zechariah were the high priest, we would have known it. In any case, uh, we begin in the temple with Zechariah, the priest, offering prayers at the table of incense just outside of the holiest place in the temple. That's where it begins. And then turn with me from Luke chapter 1 to Luke chapter 24. And at the very end of Luke's gospel, right after the resurrection of our Lord, we get this very brief ascension scene. And in verse 50, we read this. Thus he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them... He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now watch this last line that Luke gives us. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, that would be a great ending right there. But then Luke adds this particular exclamation mark when he says, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. And that sets up the story, of course, for the book of Acts, which begins with the church gathered in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost and going out from there to, towards the ends of the earth in all directions where we meet St. Peter and St. Paul and, and all of that good stuff in the book of Acts. Um, 
But as Daniel was saying, I, I'm very privileged to have a new book coming out. I want to pray, uh, ask you to pray with me for that it would help many Catholics to learn a lost um, dynamic in our Catholic culture, and that's what we call biblical theology. And that book that's coming out in April from Catholic University Press and Franciscan Press is called The House of the Lord, and it's going to focus on Genesis to Revelation. And what we're going to do tonight, in some sense, is just a small taste of what's in that larger study of biblical or temple theology. Now, let's get out the handouts. And so if you have your handout with you, the one for tonight looks like this. And it says the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's got a little bit of red color to distinguish it from the one next week. It's purple, kind of prepares for the passion. And what we're going to do tonight, as I said, is we're going to try to focus particularly on the kingdom of God. So let's jump in. The first topic we need to really talk about as we approach the gospel is the question of authorship. And as I'm sure you know, if you've been around the Institute of Catholic Culture enough, and so many of you that I met are so invested in your faith, you're such great students, I love it. Um, but we can never get enough clarity. We can never get enough clarity because we live in a culture that simply does not understand the mystery and the divinity that is in the gospels because we meet our incarnate Lord in the Gospels. But for many people, the Gospels are simply, they're a dead letter, they're, uh, they're books of the past. And so let's get some clarity as we begin on who is Luke and what does our church teach us about the authorship of St. Luke? So we're ready on page one. The first point here, St. Luke, true author of the Gospel. And I'd like to begin with a nice quotation from Dei Verbum, this is what it says. And look along with me if you have the outline, please. From paragraph 18, hugely important um, reminder here from the church. The church has always and everywhere held and continues to hold. Notice that. There's been no wavering. It's talking about from the very birth of the church, from the very first century until the present day. Right? This is written in uh, Vatican II period, 1960s, but it's just as true today in 2017, and it will be until our Lord returns. The church has never wavered or backed off at all on the fact that the Gospels are of apostolic origin. And I want you to take a lot of notes tonight in your Bible, um, and if you have the notes printed out, certainly on that, because that apostolic origin is one of those imperative truths of Catholic biblical theology, and we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years an erosion of faith in confidence in the Gospels, in part because there has been poor catechesis, in part because of some critical, skeptical scholarship. Here's what Dei Verbum says to continue. For what the apostles preached in fulfillment of the commission of Christ, afterwards they themselves and apostolic men, we're going to define that term, apostolic men under the inspiration of the divine spirit, handed on to us in writing, what it calls, this is a beautiful phrase, fellow Catholics, the foundation of faith. That's what the Gospels are. They are the foundation of our faith. Namely, the fourfold Gospel, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, what we have in the early church is an overwhelming amount of evidence that underscores that what Dei Verbum professed to us back in Vatican II is well supported historically. I'm just gonna give you one quote. It's an important quote from St. Irenaeus, but we can find in the church historian Eusebius, 
as well as in a number of other early, early witnesses, that those early Christians understood and named, personally named, the authors of the four Gospels. Here's what St. Irenaeus says. After our Lord rose from the dead, the apostles were invested with power from on high when the Holy Spirit came down. They were filled with his gifts and had perfect knowledge. That means that's talking there about this notion of inspiration, right? This charism, this protection, that they could not preach anything but the truth, exactly what God wanted put into, into writing in Scripture. Perfect knowledge. And then they departed to the ends of the earth, their missionary uh, missions, right? preaching the glad tidings from God to us. Now watch this. Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect. Let me just pause there. Um, there's some debate whether Matthew, uh, Matthew's writing mentioned here is um, to the Hebrews in his own dialect was in Hebrew or Aramaic. Now it doesn't really matter greatly because in either case, we trust St. Eris's testimony, but we do not have either a Hebrew or Aramaic gospel. The gospels were, as we have them now, are preserved in Greek manuscripts. We don't have any, any Hebrew gospels. We don't have any in Aramaic. But what this tells us, what this seems to suggest, is that the gospels that we have, at least the gospel of Matthew, prior to being written in Greek, was in some sense and in some early form originally composed in Hebrew. Now, maybe someday it'll be the case that archaeologists will discover some fragments of those early Hebrew or Aramaic Gospels. For now, we don't have them. But we certainly can trust the, um, the veracity, the truth of what um, we're being told by St. Irenaeus in this, in this very key passage. But let me continue. Um, Okay, so Matthew issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome. If I was with you in person, I'd be saying, when were Peter and Paul in Rome? Well, that's in the early 60s. So Irenaeus is giving us great information here. He's telling us Matthew wrote the first gospel, did it in Hebrew or maybe Aramaic, and give places this within about a year of when that happened, 64, 65. Then, after their departure, St. Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, handed down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. And just to pause about that, Peter is not one, uh, um, Mark is not one of the 12, as you know. But Peter indeed is the head of the College of the Apostles and certainly, yes, one of the 12. And it is that direct relationship that Mark or John Mark shares with Peter that gives us, that gives him the full apostolic credibility that, that he has. And the same thing is true with Luke, who we're going to come to right now. Um, Luke, the companion of Paul, recorded in a book, the gospel preached by him. So it's not, it's not Peter's gospel in Mark, and it's not Paul's gospel. We want to be very clear about that. That would somehow reduce St. Um, Mark and St. Luke to the role of some sort of a stenographer or secretary, which they are not. Okay. And then afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned also on his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his re residence in Ephesus in Asia. Well, that, would have, that confirms that the gospel of John is, in fact, the latest gospel, not just because it's mentioned last, but because John does not move his ministry to Ephesus until the later part of his life. It's, um, 
from that region of Ephesus that John is later taken into um, captivity. He's a prisoner of the Romans. He's exiled on an island called Patmos, and that's where he writes uh, the book of Revelation. But that's a nice little summary, and I hope all of you will print out the notes that I've put together for you, not just from Dei Verbum, which is easy enough to find, but this quote from Irenaeus, which a lot of you, some of you have seen, maybe others haven't. It's very, very important data. I want to say, stand one last point, uh, and maybe there'll be questions about this later, but I want to just hit one last point before we get into point B. Um, and that is about that the Gospels were never anonymous. My friend Brent Petrie's got a book called um, The Case for Jesus. And in that beginning chapter of his book, he deals with this question very nicely. Um, he tells a story about when he was at Notre Dame doing his doctorate there. He, um, he was told in his doctoral courses that the Gospels were originally anonymous. And Brandt, being a very curious and inquisitive guy, would go up and ask his professors, probably drove them nuts like I drove mine nuts, but he never really got a good answer. And they would always say, well, what happened was in the second century, uh, these anonymous gospels, which were basically the product of like the telephone game, you know, written by communities, not by individual authors, were, were, were only given the titles, Right the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John after the fact. And what that type of skeptical scholarship is banking on is that we won't go and check the facts. But the facts prove such skeptics wrong. It's just simply the case. Um, but I was told that too in many different times by some professors in my, uh, in my Jesuits uh, um, doctoral program, which was really brilliant and wonderful, but there was a bit of that historical skepticism there. And I was told, yeah, no, the Gospels were anonymous, and around the second century, they added the titles. Well, that led me on a similar search as Brandt. I didn't know Brandt at the time, but we were both doing our own kind of, you know, fact-checking. And we both came to the conclusion that we were misled, by not, not by the Gospels, but by the modern scholars who tried to pawn off on us this idea that the Gospels were anonymous. Now think about it with me for a minute. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if the Gospels are anonymous or if they're not anonymous? Well, if they're anonymous, right, if they were never originally composed by the apostles whose names are ascribed to them, then why are we trusting them? And the fact is that if you go into all of the early manuscripts, and this is the big kapow moment here in this part of the, of the, of the lecture, you will not find a single copy, not one, of either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in which the titles, or what are called um, signatures or inscriptions, right, which have the author's name, like the Gospel according to St. Matthew or the Gospel according to Luke, you will not find one in which those um, inscriptions are absent. Now, the inscriptions are not in every fragment we have because some of the fragments, as you know, are basically small portions of text. Like the earliest text we have is from John 18, and it's a small piece about as big as what I'm holding up here. It's only five verses from John chapter 18, verses 31 through 38. Um, in other cases where we have entire codices or early books, we can go back, right, to that first chapter and above chapter one, where we would expect to find the names of the authors as you have in your English Bible. Well, guess what? In every version that we have, every single one, 
every gospel has the named authors there. So what we have to believe with the skeptics, listen to this, is that somehow, somewhere in the second, third century, everybody just decided at once, hey, let's add all the titles in. Because see, here's the trick. We don't have any of the first century manuscripts. We have very, very early second century, right? But we do not have, and this is, a, this is fair enough, we don't, do not have the original autographs, those actually written by Luke or by John. We don't have them. Part of the reason we don't have the very early ones is either they were lost, but I think the argument goes in favor of they were destroyed. Remember, Christianity is being persecuted for the first several centuries. So the reason that we don't have those first centuries and some of the second centuries, we have so many more from the third, fourth, fifth, is during the time of Constantine, Christianity is legalized, right? But part of the persecution that was happening was burning all the Christians, well, burning the Christians, but also burning their, their books, the Bible, right? And so it's amazing that even though we don't have any of the original autographs or first century texts, Christianity is not stomped out. Um, but the point is that when you go back, as far as you can go, the titles are all there. So again, what the skeptics would have us believe is that somehow, some way, everybody across all the Mediterranean world, right, just all got together at once and said, you know what, it's time to add these names, kind of either fictionally or mythologically, and let's just call this one Matthew, because it kind of goes back to the person who was called Matthew, even though he didn't write it, right? Let's call this one Mark. Well, if that was the case, wouldn't you not expect that there would be a period of gradual evolution of the names coming in so that they came in over centuries gradually where some had them, some didn't? Of course, that's what we would expect. But they're all there in every single case. And they actually follow a very similar formula. The gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke. Uh, because from the perspectives of the eyewitnesses who wrote them, it was not their gospel. It was the gospel of God. Um, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's the gospel according to. Those titles, folks, were there from the very beginning. They were never not there. The gospels are not and have never been anonymous. We're going to talk a lot more about eyewitness testimony, but let's move on in our series and take a look at the evidence about Luke himself. So point B on page one. By trade, his name is Lucas, and I'll spell that for you, L-O-U-K-A-S in the Greek. And he was an Iatros, I-A-T-R-O-S, which is to say a physician. Let me come back here to you. Uh, there we go. Um, and so this is some of the evidence that we have about him. Uh, we're told in Colossians 1, uh, sorry, Colossians 4, verse 14, that he is a physician. What kind we don't know. Um, some have speculated that because of Paul's thorn in the flesh, perhaps his eyesight, perhaps other ailments, that he was Paul's personal physician. But we do not know that necessarily concretely. Certainly he is a physician and he's with Paul, and Paul did have ailments, so it makes a lot of sense. Uh, secondly, this is the second point, that he traveled with St. Paul on several journeys. And I'm not going to read all the scriptures, but I do want you to go and look some of them up, because I want you to come into uh, 
um, a better clarity about St. Luke over these next two weeks. So we have Colossians 4 and other passages that are in your outline. And then we're told, as we heard from St. Irenaeus and elsewhere, that he's the author of two books. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke. And then if you turn to the book of Acts, and I want you to actually turn with me to Acts chapter 1, you can see that in Acts 1, he begins with this introduction. Acts 1, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. That is to say, until he was ascended into heaven. It's just where the second book, the first book leaves off. And if you turn back to Luke chapter 1, you see um, his prologue begins with the same address to Theophilus. That is to say, God lover or one beloved of God, Theophilus. And so this is um, um, what we know about Luke, is that he was the physician, he was a Gentile, he was a companion of St. Paul, and uh, this makes him what we call an apostolic man. Now I want to ask you to look at this quote from Tertullian. It's on the bottom of one, top of two, let me read it for us. Uh, Tertullian said this, We lay it down as of first importance that the Evangelical Testament, by which he means the Gospels, have, have apostles for their authors. He's talking here about um, the Gospels of Matthew and the Gospel of John, who are both part of the Twelve. Um, to whom the Lord himself assigned this office by, office by publishing a Gospel. Uh, since, however, there are apostolic men, by which he means St. Mark and St. Luke, they are not alone, but are disciples of the apostles. If you're looking at the outline right now, you'll see that I've bracketed some of the terms, and I also have a footnote to tell you that I have cleaned up and changed the translation. So if you look at a translation, some of you have collections of the fathers, and you look up Tertullian, the translation's a little different, but I haven't changed anything of the veracity of it. I've just cleaned it up for, for you to hear it a little bit better. Okay, so Luke and Mark are apostolic men. And this is how Dei Verbum regards them as well. We can't really call them apostles because the, our church is very protective of that term apostle. That is to say, as those who were with Jesus, right? So well, what about Paul? Well, Paul is a little bit unique because of his experience after the fact. Remember, he says he was one untimely born. He was born after the, um, he, he, he was outside of the context of the 12 and he meets Jesus um, in his resurrected glory on the road to Damascus. So Paul's kind of his own guy. But as far as St. Mark and Luke, their qualifications are, according to Tertullian here, because of their direct, being directly discipled by both, um, by Peter and by Paul, in Luke's case, by Paul. The preaching of the disciples, of the apostles, might be open to suspicion. I love the way the early church fathers, they don't, they don't kick things under the table, right? If there is something that seems a little off, let's talk about it. Let's get the facts. And here's the facts. It might be open to suspicion if they did not accompany it the authority of the masters who belonged to Christ, for it was that which made the apostles their masters. So Tertullian's giving us a little insight here. It seems that what Tertullian is telling us is that there is the kind of stamp of approval um, in the early tradition of the church of both St. Luke and St. Mark because they were known as disciples of Paul and of Peter. 
and that there would have been some sort of overturning or disputation of their gospels had they been imposters or had they simply put out a gospel and said that they knew, uh, pardon me, Luke knew Paul but didn't or something like that. Of the apostles, Tertullian says, John and Mark first instilled faith into us while the apostolic men, Luke and Mark, renewed it afterwards. Okay, now let's get into Luke chapter 1. I think my favorite passage in the Gospel of Luke is likely the one we're going to read right now. It is so important, and there's so much in here, so we're just going to scratch the surface, okay? But if you look on your outline on page two, let me read for us the prologue, and then I want to help you understand what's at stake in these just four verses. Here's what it says from the Revised Standard Version. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished among us, just as they were delivered to us from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, again, God lover, beloved of God, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Okay, um, I'm not going to use the whiteboard right now, but I might spell out some of the terms, but they're also on your outline because there's some key terms we want to understand in the Greek. So on page two, Luke's eyewitness methodology. This is what we're looking at. We're trying to examine Luke's method of gospel writing. We've already established that the gospels were not anonymous. We've established that historically, Luke is the eyewitness, is the author of uh, the gospel in which he's writing. The first thing I would call your attention to is that he uses this word eyewitnesses. Do you see that in your Bible in uh, highlighted or underlined it if you would? The word eyewitnesses. When I actually write it out, I actually like to hyphen eye and witness because it calls attention to a word that's so common, we forget what it means. We think it means, oh, someone who's kind of close to it. But literally, it means an eyewitness. Not just an earwitness, but an eyewitness. The word in Greek is autopi. It's A-U-T-O-P-T-A-I. And it means eyewitnesses. And um, as one scholar on Luke said, and this is on your outline, eyewitness testimony was of great importance for historiography in those times, meaning in biblical times, eyewitness testimony. Um, and as Francis Bavone says, Francois Bavone, it was better to have seen than to have heard. And so I wanna suggest here that Luke's precise language, right, he's being pretty surgical here, kind of pun intended with his language, very precise, is giving us clues if we're willing to slow down and pay attention to the exact words that he chooses. And the word eyewitness seems to be a key indicator of what Francois Bavone calls this manner of writing in which eyewitness testimony is preferred over simply secondhand knowledge or hearsay or oral reports. So right from verse two, we're told somehow, even though Luke is not in the company of Jesus, Somehow he preferred and sought out those who actually saw what happened. 
That's the first point. The next point, and our final point about the prologue, is in verse 3. And this one I am going to try to write out for you here because it's a little tricky to, uh, uh, I want you to see it if I can and maybe get it into your own, uh, your brain and your notes there if we can. So let's get another word up here in the Greek. Um, the phrase, in case you don't have the outline, is, uh, let me just spell it out for you, gropsi kathixis, K-A-T-H-E-X-E-S. Gropsi cathexis. And what this translates to is an orderly account. Remember he says, it seemed good also for me to give to you an orderly account. Now that term is very, very important in terms of his methodology. Only Luke uses cathexis among the New Testament authors and only very sparsely. So it's kind of a a key term that he, he hauls out to say something very, very specific. It's not used indiscriminately. Um, and I give you the citations where he uses it three times total. The term is used by ancient historians, and it's actually found a lot in the Roman historians. Here's again what one scholar says. The allusion to the orderliness of presentation by Luke refers to, number one, comprehensive scope, so I'm trying to tell you here what orderly account means. Comprehensive, and who could say Luke is not being comprehensive, right? Comprehensive scope. Number two, a, chronologi a chronologically or salvation historically correct sequence. So first, comprehensive scope. Secondly, sequence. And third, a balanced composition. Those are three important things that we learn from Luke's phrase that I just put up on the whiteboard for you. Comprehensive scope chronologically or sequentially accurate account and balanced composition. Now, that's Francois Bavon. Here comes Dr. Smith. Bavon is a great scholar, but he's leaving out one thing very, very important. It doesn't go far enough. Those three do not go far enough. They're all true. But Richard Bauckham, who's a brilliant uh, scholar, has ably shown that Luke's orderly account Gropsychothexis uh, corresponds to ancient Roman historiography where via voce, I'll just spell this one for you, V-I-V-A, and then second word, B-O-C-E. It's in your notes. Viva voce, living voices of oral sources were highly preferred over secondhand accounts. Now, what this means is that we haven't answered the question yet Okay, Luke says he, want, he prefers eyewitness testimony, right? He prefers that eyewitness account. But if he wasn't there, how does he get it? Well, what Richard Baucom says in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, goes in the direction of Luke's journeys to the places and what essentially amounts to interviews. In other words, the picture that's emerging here is of a very astute historian who himself is a disciple, not just of Paul, but let's be clear, of Jesus himself. He's a Christian. And his desire is to, to spread the gospel, beginning with this Theophilus figure, to many, many others, obviously, and to give us the comprehensive story, to give us a chronologically and balanced account. But that's not all he's doing. Richard Baucom 
is reminding us that what Luke's method ultimately tells us in these four verses is that he went and talked to the people. Via, viva voce means living voices. He went and heard the stories. He sat down with the people and listened and probably took notes. He probably had Luke was, the Gospel of Luke was probably um, preceded by some sort of Lucan notebook that he kept with him or notes out of which he wrote his gospel. This is not Dr. Smith saying this. I'm simply telling you what the best scholarship has told us about these four verses. Now, most of you are such hardcore believers, but there may be people out there tonight that are still listening and are like, I don't know, it seems like a lot to pull out of four verses. But I would challenge you to pick up Bauckham's book. And in the book, he gives all sorts of uh, primary sources from the Roman world. And when you compare prologues of histories written by Roman historians and you look at Luke's, Luke falls right in line with the methodology in which they follow viva voce, living voices. That was the best kind of history that was produced at that time. It also was very painstaking and in some ways dangerous. And I'll get into that. Point B, what does this mean for us? Bottom of page two. It means as a historian, Luke's methodology was impeccable. He did not rely on hearsay, but on investigate, but investigated all matters written about the gospel, written by him in his gospel. He would have traveled, as I said, to the regions of Jesus's childhood, that is to say Nazareth, and to his sites of his public ministry around Galilee, and then later in Jerusalem. How long this would have taken is difficult to say, but he would have interviewed the persons that he wrote about. Now, this would have been to Luke, preferentially, this is page three, eyewitnesses, those who are actually there. I saw it. Let me tell you what happened. As either named or unnamed persons involved in the gospel stories. And I'm going to just delineate between the named and the unnamed. By name, I mean someone who actually is uh, described by their, their, their birth name, like Jairus, right? Um, or unnamed persons, just a certain man, okay? That was one way, is directly talking to the people who were there, named or unnamed. Or secondly, and this would be the second tier down, but still highly prized, viva voce, oral sources of persons such as family members. I wasn't there but it was my mother who was there. I wasn't there, but it was my son who was there. Okay, so those persons who could, from a firsthand account, communicate the facts. Now, let's take a couple of examples. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Now, listen to what Luke says. This is in the story of the nativity, right? And in Luke 2, 19, Nearing the end of it, he says, but Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Pondering these things in her heart. The Greek is on your outline. En otes te cardia, parting them in her innermost place, secretly, privately. My question for you is, how did Luke arrive at that information? There's only two options, folks. Either he got it from a first-hand source, that is to say the Blessed Virgin Mary herself, 
or a viva voce, a living source, someone who told the story, right? Mary's sister, um, a relative, someone who knew her, who could sort of, you know, say, you know, Mary was always praying about these things. That's how we would put it, right? Mary's always praying about these things, very prayerful. Luke writes that down and it comes out in his gospel. She pondered it in her heart. The other possibility is that he made it up, which is obviously not the case, right? That goes completely against the grain of everything he's just told us. So to go out of his way to say, I'm giving you an eyewitness account that I'm preferring living voices, and then to go and simply add something and have made it up would be the worst capital offense you could possibly imagine. So that's exciting, isn't it? To me, it is. To me, it's exciting to know that Luke got this information either from the Blessed Virgin herself or someone very, very close to her who knew Mary enough and knew that Mary, it's giving us an image here. This is why we're spending so much time on this tonight. I want you to fall in love with Luke's gospel in a new way by understanding just how careful and devout he is about this process. And when you read every line, I want things to jump off the page for you in a new way by understanding that everything he gave us here, he labored over. And just what a gentle and soulful Christian he is. Because that line we just read is so astounding, right? Luke wants us to know about the mysteries that Mary pondered in her innermost life, in her body, in her heart. Another example. By the way, uh, before we go into the next example, it's twice that he says this. It's in Luke 2.19 and then in 2.51, after the finding in the temple, um, Luke says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. And just before that, he says, and they came to Nazareth and he was obedient to his parents and his mother kept all these things in her heart. Now the slightly different phrase, but it's the same idea. It's like, there you go again. I think if I can say this, something touched Luke about that part of the testimony. He saw that as important to, to report. He didn't leave out, he didn't put in details that were unnecessary, and he didn't leave any out that were unnecessary. Okay, let's go on to another example. Luke chapter 8. Turn over to 8. Now here we have a miracle in a miracle story. In Luke chapter 8, we have the healing of the man whose name is Jairus. He's one of those named eyewitnesses. In Luke 8.40, in Luke 8.40, this is what we read. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him and all were waiting for him. A certain man was there named Jairus. And look what a great historian he is, who was the ruler of the synagogue. So immediately we know a couple things. One, he's a devout Jew. Secondly, he's a person of some authority. He's the leader of the synagogue. And he's named, the man's name is Jairus. Okay, so, and then we get the story of the healing of Jairus's child, right? It's a daughter. She's 12 years of age, right? And we know the story of what happened. She's dying, and Jesus heals his daughter, right? But there's also another story that's embedded around this other one, right? The woman who is, who is hemorrhaging, right? And she's had a flow of blood for 12 years. A 12-year-old and a flow of blood for 12 years. Interesting with the numbers there. But um, this is 
Another question for us, how is the name of the man known to Luke? Again, there's only a couple possibilities, right? One is that he got the story from Jairus himself. That's, a poss that's possibility A. Possibility B is it was a viva voce, again, that Latin phrase, a oral source, someone who, maybe it was the daughter, which would be kind of beautiful. Maybe it was the daughter. Or maybe it was someone that we don't know who was uh, near enough to Jairus who recounted it. I like to think it was Jairus himself, because while Jairus didn't write a gospel, he darn near composed a mini one, which is, let me tell you about Jesus and what he did for my daughter, right? And that was Jairus's gospel. Everybody that came in, he'd be so proud, right, of what Jesus did, that that was the story he told. And so what we have in a sense in Luke is like gospels within the gospel. The gospel, according to Jairus, you might say, in the gospel of Luke. That's how I tend to think of it. But it may be well the case that we get it from, he gets it from another source. Okay, now let's go to one final example. This one is in Luke 8.43. And it's, as I said, it's right around the story. It's within the story of Jairus and his daughter. Luke 8.43, and a woman, Gune, it's all it says, Gune, a woman, no name, who had a flow of blood for 12 years and who had spent all of her money. Again, the detail is astounding, right? That bespeaks of not just, you know, like a story that's passed on in its most basic details, right? Smoothed out over time. But fascinating facts. We're learning about these characters. Uh, spent all of her living on physicians who could not be healed by any of them. Then we get the story. She touches the hem, uh, hem of his garment. By the way, I was just in the Holy Land. If some of you were there with uh, Father Hezekiah at Magdala, uh, there's a beautiful painting of this scene. Um, in Magdala, which is where uh, there was a synagogue, first century synagogue discovered. And I urge you to go. Um, and uh, when you go to go to Magdala with Father Hezekiah and the Institute, and you'll see this spectacular, glorious painting of feet. And in the middle is the feet of Jesus and this hand that's reaching out just to grab the hem of his garment. And it's from this passage in Luke's gospel. Okay. But the point is, in this case, we get so much detail. She came up behind him. The Greek term is given here, opisthen, in behind him. Not necessary to the story. That bespeaks again of someone who vividly knew it and recounted it. A 12 years, dodeca eton, 12 years. Again, remarkable detail. Now, Richard Bauckham, who I mentioned earlier, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, has a fascinating theory, a fascinating theory on the unnamed persons. The named persons, obviously, indicate those concrete figures like Jairus and the many others. But what about the unnamed figures? I love Bauckham's proposal. He suggests that the unnamed persons were kept discreet by Luke intentionally, sealing their identity, as Bauckham says, to preserve their testimony, but to protect them. Protect them from what? Well, Christianity is a dangerous business in the first and second centuries. And it may be possible that this woman faced humiliation, being ostracized by her family. And I say, oh, that wasn't going on, was it, Dr. Smith, in those days? Look at, look at John 9.22, where Jesus heals the man born blind, and he asked the parents uh, about the situation, right? And the parents say, ask him what happened. He's of age, and they said this because they did not want to be thrown out of the synagogue. 
the Greek term apasunagoge, apo meaning out and sunagoge synagogue. They were afraid of being ostracized by, the, by their Jewish community. So there's biblical evidence that there was great persecution going on of Christians by both the Roman Empire and also by, sadly, by, by many Jews as well. And it may be the case that this woman, were she to name herself, would cause, bring so much harm into her life that uh, her name is protected. Much like if you think of a, a good reporter who would back up his story with two or three sources and say, like, a very key source in the White House says, he's not going to say who it is, right? Or a key source in the Pentagon tells us, right, we have to trust the testimony that they're not making that up, but that there's a reason that we can't know the name. Okay, that's what I think is going on there. Okay, now, let's at least get into this initial theme that we're looking at tonight a little bit before our break, and that is the kingdom of God. Now that we are reintroduced to Luke's, Luke as the author and his eyewitness testimony, we've already, I think, learned a lot. Um, now we want to really go deep and particularly into one theme, and that is the kingdom of God, which is a theme that occurs in all four Gospels, but Luke has a particular take on it. And that's going to be the focus now from here on out and then next week as well. On page three, I thought it would be good to start with some quotes from the Catechism. I say this every time I'm live with you at the Institute or really everywhere I go. You can ask Patrick May, um, who's one of my seminarians, hi Pat, that the catechism is an essential tool for biblical study. And don't let anyone poo-poo that. Oh, you know, look down their nose. Oh, you know, well, I know the Greek or I have this. That's great. But have your catechism. And hopefully you have yours tonight because I want to take you through a couple passages that really get at the notion of the kingdom of God. The first one is 2816-2816. And here's what it says. In the New Testament, the word basileia can be translated kingship as a noun, basileia, kingship, kingdom, a concrete noun, or reign is what it calls an action noun. So kingship, kingdom, or reign. The kingdom of God lies ahead of us. Oh, let me just add, all of those, I think, are, are suitable terms. Reign of God is very popular in pastoral ministry, and I don't, I don't want to sound negative about that. If you use it or prefer it, there's nothing wrong with it. But I think the kingdom is the word that is most preferred that we want to think on here. So the catechism says, the kingdom of God lies ahead of us. It is brought near to us in the word incarnate. It is proclaimed throughout the entire gospel, and it has come in Christ's death and resurrection. Did you catch that? There's way too much confusion, folks, about kingdom of God. We're going to clear this up tonight and next week. When is it? Where is it? How is it? Catechism tells us it has come in Christ's death and resurrection. It's here. The kingdom of God has been coming since the Last Supper. A little bit different fold on it, right? It's coming as death and resurrection, but also in the Last Supper. And in the Eucharist, it is in our midst. So we could say theologically that the kingdom of God is manifested in the passion and resurrection. And it's also in a particular way with us in an ongoing way, Eucharistically. Uh, the kingdom will come in glory when Christ hands it over to his Father. So Sometimes we can talk about this as the um, both present and future sense of the kingdom of God. It's here, and it is also coming. 
It's not one or the other, it's both. It's here. It's also coming. Okay, 2816. Another one. We'll try to squeeze these in before the break. Secondly, 541. Catechism says this. Now, the Father's will is to raise up men to share in his own divine life. He does this by gathering men around his son, Jesus Christ. This gathering is the church. Now, watch this. On earth, the seed and beginning of that kingdom. I want you to be very clear on the distinction between the church and the kingdom. The catechism tells us that the church is the gathering of the kingdom of God on earth and the seed and beginning of that kingdom. The church is the seed of the kingdom where it begins to grow. Um, and uh, Pope Benedict in his book on Jesus of Nazareth also helpfully delineated between church and kingdom as not being exactly identical. You have to sort of think of that parable of the wheat and the tares, okay, in the sense that the church is giving rise to and manifest, manifesting the kingdom within it, uh, but it is also expanding and, um, and is something that is not yet fully brought to fruition and only will be when our Lord uh, comes, right? 544, Catechism says, uh, 543, everyone is called to enter the kingdom. So now getting to membership or identity, right? First announced to the children of Israel, this messianic kingdom is intended to be accepted by men of all nations. And we'll get a sense of that later when we look at a passage in Luke 4, where Jesus turns the screws on his own fellow Nazareans because their notion of kingdom is too small. And we'll do that later for sure. 544, the catechism tells us the kingdom belongs to the poor and the lowly, something our Pope has been reminding us about in many ways in his very profound and, and unique papal ministry that's been unfolding before us, to the poor and to the lowly. And such a great reminder it is from Pope Francis, which means that those who have accepted it, accept it with humble hearts. So let's do the next one. It is from 544 also. Jesus invites sinners to the table of the kingdom. He says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. He invites them to that conversion without which one cannot enter the kingdom, that necessary conversion. Let me be pastoral and brotherly for a moment and say, what has God been doing in your life lately in terms of conversion? How has he been converting you more and more into his image lately? Who are your spiritual friends that you can share those ups and downs and stories with? It's important to do so with discreet and careful spiritual friends, those who will, we can entrust our our, our spiritual lives with, because it helps to articulate to ourselves and to others what God is doing. Please make a way to do that for yourself, or at least pray that God would give you such spiritual friends. And there's so many in the Institute. Many of you have those friends. Don't just talk about the weather. Don't just talk about the Super Bowl. Talk about your spiritual walks. Encourage one another. He invites them to conversion without which one cannot enter the kingdom, but shows them in word and deed his Father's boundless mercy for them and his vast joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So we'll look at next week all those parables about how 
God moves heaven and earth for to find one sinner and bring them into the kingdom of God. 546, Jesus' invitation to enter his kingdom comes in the form of parables. And as I mentioned, we're going to get more into those. A characteristic feature of his teaching. And it's through the parables that he invites people to the feast, the banquet of the kingdom. But that also means the catechism says, you know what's coming, right? A radical choice. A radical choice. And it is a choice. To gain the kingdom, one must lose everything. Think of the rich young ruler, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments, and he names them. And the guy's like, yeah, I've done all those. I'm, I'm in good shape then, right? Well, it's just one more thing for you. Sell everything you have and follow me. And he goes, oh, I don't know about that one. The radical choice of following Jesus. Words are not enough. Great quote from the catechism. Words are not enough. Deeds are required. Love that line. Words are not enough. Deeds are required. And then St. Cyprian. We'll close with this one, and I think it's time for a break after that. St. Cyprian says, it may be, this is a great quote, it may be, page four, that the kingdom of God means Christ himself. It may be that the kingdom of God means Christ himself, for whom we daily desire to come, and whose coming we may wish to be manifested quickly to us. For he is our resurrection, since in him we rise. He can also be understood as the kingdom of God himself. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And St. Luke, pray for us, and I turn it back over to our good folks at the Institute. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, and because I know you're such a, uh, a faithful and also, in many ways, intellectual group, love reading and Kindle, I'm going to uh, put Daniel on the spot and ask him, or Maria, some point, maybe tonight, even during the next part here, if it's, po if it's possible to add a link to, um, to Amazon for Richard Bauckham's book, because a few may want to pick it up and say, I like that idea. I want to go further into studying this eyewitness testimony. It's Richard Bauckham, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M. The book is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And some of you may just want to grab it yourself, but maybe we can get the link for some of you just to find it in case you forget or whatever. Um, but it's a very helpful book in terms of what we were talking about in much, much more depth there than I could talk about tonight. Okay, do you all have your outlines? Are you ready to dive back in? On page four, um, we've now come a long way, and we want to start moving more and more into this theme of, and I see Patrick May has put it up. Thank you, Patrick. So nice. The theme of the kingdom of God in Luke, we're going to start with a primer. Let's move closer here. So on page four, four, the kingdom of God in Luke, a primer. Now in Luke, the term is very prominent. It occurs, basileia occurs 45 times, 45 times. And basileia tutheu, that is kingdom of God, tutheu is simply of God occurs 32 times. So 45 times the word kingdom, and then a little bit less, but still very prominent, basileia tutheu. In the remainder of the study, tonight and the next week, we're going to examine as many of those as we can. I basically, preparing this a uh, month or so ago, went through with my uh, Catholic biblical software called Verbum, and pulled out in the Greek all of those occurrences and tried to pick out as many as I thought would be good examples. And we have tons lined up. 
But I want to start by going back to the Old Testament because I realized that so many of us, uh, we hear the word kingdom, but we don't live in a world, for the most part, that politically thinks in terms of kingdoms. We think in terms of nation states, of countries, and things like that, right? And I think if we go back just a little bit into the biblical period of Daniel, we'll learn something about what kingdom meant and also see a prefigurement, believe it or not, of the kingdom of God. And if you haven't seen this before, it's going to make your head spin because it's going to show you, I think, and I hope I can deliver on this, make your head spin, but it's a very amazing prefigurement of the kingdom of God. Let's go back to Daniel. So let's start in Daniel chapter 2. This is an exilic prophet, and the book of Daniel is written and takes place during the time of captivity. The Jewish people were for 40 years in exile. And I just have to add this uh, um, as, we're, as you're turning to Daniel, that this was such a tremendous upheaval. It's hard to put into words. The Babylonian captivity really meant the collapse of the Davidic kingdom in Israel. Remember, David is king in the year 1000. And then God promises to him this everlasting kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So everything was looking up in the year 1000. And even with Solomon, but after Solomon, things went awry. The kingdom splits in two. And then the northern ten tribes, who am I talking here? This is institute people. You know all this, but I'm going to say it anyways. The northern ten tribes are plundered by the Assyrians in the 700s. Um, Hezekiah, like Father Hezekiah, his namesake, um, the, um, Hezekiah, the good king in the 700s, spares Jerusalem by building the walls and bringing the water into the city. And those of you who went to Jerusalem, walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And if not, put it on your bucket list. You'll do that when you go with Father Hezekiah and the Institute. But that was the 700s. Jerusalem is spared. But then in the 500s, 587 to be particular, the Babylonians, an empire as fierce and as powerful as the Soviet Union was, say, in the 1960s, 70s, came and annihilated Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple of Solomon. And they took the last Davidic king, whose name was Zedekiah. Second Kings tells the story took him into chains and eventually killed him. And they made sure that there was no more Davidic king. Okay, that's the context in the background. And then the people of, of Jerusalem, many of them are taken into captivity into Babylon. All right, let's read a little bit of Daniel. So busy talking there, I've been turning myself. But make sure that you turn and open up to the book of Daniel, one of the great major prophets of the Old Testament. And in chapter 2, we learned some very fascinating things about where Daniel is placed because he's not just out there in Babylon. He is this close to the uh, king whose name is Nebuchadnezzar, whose name I'm sure that you know. And let's read and go right into the story of Daniel and what happens. There is trouble in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king, O king, Live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. Sure you will. The king answered, 
The word from me is sure. If you do not make it known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. So you better get this right. And your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time. Let the king tell his servants the dream. <laughs> it's almost funny to me, right? Tell us the dream and then we'll figure it out. We'll just kind of spitball here, right? He's not interested in that. He's, not, he's a shrewd man. He wants to know what it means. Then verse 8, the king answered, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. He's like, don't play games with me, right? Because you see that the word for me is sure that if you do not make the dream known to me, you know that I'm going to take your necks off, right? Okay. So this is the backdrop. This is the story. And then Daniel, who becomes uh, so close to the king, it's through a um, really a providential set of circumstances, now is the opportunity to step in during the king's time of frustration. Here's this, here's this, uh, you know, this guy from this uh, conquered people. What is he going to do, right? Let's watch and read what happens in this conversation between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pick it up in verse 19. In verse 19, we're told that the mystery is revealed to Daniel. Mystery is a key word in Daniel, mysterion in the Greek. We'll come back to that. In a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now listen to his prayer. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. You know what happens? Daniel receives a dream. He blesses God. He sees it as a gift to whom belong wisdom and might. He doesn't claim the knowledge as his own. Daniel's humble. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings and gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and mysterious things. He knows what is in the darkness and what light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, Daniel prays, I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and strength, and has now made known to me what we ask of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Now, something occurs to me, and this isn't in my notes, but it actually just occurred to me, that at the beginning of the Davidic kingdom with Solomon, Solomon prayed for and received wisdom. That's what Solomon prayed for. You can go back to uh, his story in the book of 1 Kings, beginning in chapter 4, and he prays for and receives wisdom, and he asked the Lord for the gift of wisdom, so that he would govern wisely. And God gives him that wisdom. But Solomon turns out to be, as it, as it turns out, not the wisest man. Turn with me for a moment to the book of Sirach, which is one of those apocryphal books, which is why you need, which is why you need a Catholic Bible, why a Protestant Bible, God bless them, is just not going to do at the Institute of Catholic Culture. This is not the Institute of Non-Denominational Culture, okay? All right, we're glad you're here if you're a Protestant. I was a Protestant for seven years. Uh, but the, book that you miss, the books that you miss out on are so filled with insight and wisdom for living that we, we got to help you understand these books. Even if you don't believe that they're inspired, read them. So, book of Sirach. Now, beginning in chapter 44, if you throw me to 44, at the end of the book, we get this hall of faith of the faithful people of the Old Testament. And Sirach, this, this wise sage, praises all the wise people from the Old Testament. 
Strangely, Adam's not in there. I don't know why, but he begins with Enoch, and he goes all the way through. If you look at chapter 45, and we're trying to get to 47, but just flip through with me. Okay, you get the prophets, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's a great line. Just got to pass this up. Check this out. In um, Sirach 44, verse 19, Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations. No one has been found in him like glory. Watch what it says next. He kept the law of the Most High. Sorry, Sirach, I didn't really, did I miss something? How did he keep the law of the Most High if it wasn't given until Mount Sinai with Moses? Because by the time of Sirach, a deeper understanding of where the um, law came from was being formulated. It was given from the, uh, the beginning of creation. But we digress. So we get this whole hall of, of faithful people, 40, chapter 47, we get Nathan and David. It says great things about him. Now let's turn to Solomon. Verse 12, 47, 12. After him rose up a wise son who fared amply because of David. Solomon reigned in days of peace, and God gave him rest on every side. He might build a house for his name and prepare a sanctuary to stand forever. How wise you became, but watch this, in your youth. You overflowed like a river with understanding. Your soul covered the earth. Um, Solomon was known, just as Moses was, by the Egyptians and by other races as a magician or as a healer or as a miracle worker, as well as a sage. So there was great curiosity about this wise man named Solomon. You filled the world with parables and riddles, verse 15. Okay, all this great stuff, your songs and parables, right? But now watch this. Verse 18. In the name of the Lord God, who is called the God of Israel, you gathered gold like tin? That doesn't sound like necessarily praise. And you amassed silver like lead. Hey, it sounds like you're making armaments here. Yes, Sirach is accusing Solomon of being not so wise. He prayed for wisdom, but then it went awry because he has the 700 wives and 300 concubines, which is really a way of saying, yes, he's an adulterer, but it's also a way of saying he's a political wheeler dealer because Solomon uh, made these marriage contracts with pagan peoples. And then what happens is when you make the political deal, you honor them by allowing their culture to be um, included in your own monotheistic culture. So he's allowing high places, in other words, pagan altars in Israel. That's what really being married to 700 wives means for the people. It means he brought paganism and idolatry all over the place, syncretism. So he goes from this wise political leader who loved God to a unwise political leader. And then it says, you laid your loins beside women and through your body you were brought into subjection you put a stain upon your honor and defiled your posterity so that you brought wrath upon your children and they were grieved at your folly. Folks, this is the only place in the Bible you're going to hear this about Solomon. Chronicles, uh, Kings only tell all the, um, you know, they kind of, you know, give only the pristine aspect of him. But Sirach gives us the underbelly. He brought wrath. He was, they were grieved at Solomon's folly so that the sovereignty was divided. Boom, there it is. And that's that story of the Babylonian captivity we're looking at, right, with Daniel, is that it lays the blame at Solomon's feet for that Babylonian captivity for the exile. Nevertheless, watch this messianic promise. It says, so the sovereignty was divided and a disobedient kingdom arose out of the north. Ephraim is the northern capital once the north splits from the south, right? But the Lord, the Lord will never give up on his hesed. Hesed, H-E-S-E-D, is the word that's used for mercy. It's a very important term. It's covenantal, folks. 
It's the term used over and over again, all the way back to the book of Genesis, when God wants to talk about the oath that he swore to Abraham and his children. It's not just God's warm and fuzzies towards Israel. It is his word, his bond, that he has pledged himself to his people perpetually. And Sirach, as a good Jew, knows that no matter what the unwise King Solomon did, he cannot undo God's promises. He will never blot out the descendants of his chosen one, nor destroy the posterity of him who he loved. That's Abraham and David. And so he gave a remnant to, J to Jacob and to David a root of his stock. What does that mean? It means a new Davidic king is coming. It means Solomon, David's own son Solomon, the son of David, the son of David, the wisest man, Sirach says, was the downfall of the Davidic kingdom. But then he says, because God is greater than David and greater than Solomon, that it doesn't matter because God's going to make it right anyways because of his hesed. Okay, now that's going to contrast, that image of uh, Solomon's going to contrast with what we see of Daniel, who prays for wisdom and as far as we know, receives it and remains humble, unlike Solomon. So let's go back to Daniel now. And let's get more into what he says to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2 of Daniel, verse 24, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. We're still dealing with that story. And he said to them, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show him the king's interpretation. Do you notice even the, uh, the natural goodness, the common good, in scripture that Daniel has, even for these people, you know, don't, don't go and kill them. Let's just time out here, right? I can help you out. You don't need to kill anybody. And then he goes before the king. Verse 26. Um, he's identified as an exile from the Judeans. Verse 25, 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me? So that's his Babylonian name, right? Are you able to make known to me the dream uh, that I've seen in its interpretation. Watch this. Daniel answered the king, no wise men, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the, mass, the mystery which the king has asked. So look, spare their lives, but I'm going to be blunt. They don't know what they're talking about. And nor do I. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Folks, this is one of those Put it on your bumper sticker, write it on your mirror, put it somewhere, remember it tomorrow morning, tell people about it from your Bible study. What a great verse. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And so now Daniel is not taking any credit for it. It's all given over to God. Unlike Solomon, who kind of took the kingdom astray, Daniel remains faithful and true. But now what does the image mean? Because I promised we were going here to learn something about the kingdom of God and the Old Testament. So here it is, verse 31. You saw, O king, and notice, by the way, Daniel doesn't need to stall. He doesn't say, hey, tell me what it is, and then we'll figure it out on the fly, right? Because God has revealed him the truth. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Now, at this point, you got to just pause and say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is probably freaking out at this point because he's like, all these charlatans are like, yeah, we'll help you out. They just don't want to be killed. But now here's the man and he's like, he's speaking into his dream. He's telling him his dream. Okay, this image stood before you. It was a frightening image. 
the head of the image was a fine gold. Now I want you to get a piece of paper and um, if you can, just draw out a kind of a rectangle like this and you want to divide it into four, basically four slots because I'm going to kind of, I want you to take notes on this and understand the details. Okay, verse 32, the head is this statue, is a fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. Okay, so these various precious metals going from the most precious gold down to uh, silver and then bronze and then iron, and the iron's mixed with clay at the bottom, the feet. You got it? So from the strongest and most uh, precious to the, to the least. But yet it's strong at the bottom, but kind of, just, it's just iron. There's no gold, there, just iron. And then it says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Now, what do you think that means? By no human hand. It means that something's coming into the dream that is from this God who reveals mysteries. It's heavenly. It's supernatural. It's not man-made. It's a heavenly kingdom. Okay. A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it smote the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, then the clay, then the bronze and silver, so the whole thing just comes collapsing down. Altogether broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. Just blown away, right? So that not a trace of it could be found. It's gone. This fierce image totally destroyed by the small heavenly stone. But the stone that struck the mount, the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, hang on to that. So then he goes on to describe that and interpret what that gold had means. So here's the, there, there's the dream. Now, here's the interpretation, right? Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings. Interesting, right? The king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, those kind of Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A little bit like the Lord's Prayer there almost. And into those hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the sons of men, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the air, and you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is like, hey, I like this dream. I'm the gold head, right? I don't know about these other parts, but I'm the gold head. That sounds good to me. Okay, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and then there shall be a fourth kingdom. Watch this. Strong as iron, strong as iron, because it iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron which crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So it it goes from gold to silver to bronze and then to iron, which crushes, but then it's also mixed with clay, whatever this kingdom is at the bottom, the most recent coming after Nebuchadnezzar down the road, is brittle. It's a divided kingdom. And then, um, so what does this mean in terms of history? Well, there's been a lot of debate about which kingdoms are intended here. Certainly, there's no debate about the gold. Daniel's told us that's Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar, that's Babylon. Now, what, who reigns after the Babylonians? Anybody know? It is the Persians. Because the Persians overpower the Babylonians a generation later in 539, and they allow the Jews through an edict to come back into Judea and rebuild the temple. It's called the Edict of Cyrus. So Cyrus is probably intended here in terms of that silver. And then the third kingdom, the bronze, uh, most scholars agree, 
is probably either Alexander the Great or at least the Greek kingdoms. Alexander did not leave, as you know, one successor. He was kind of shrewd in that way. It's just like, you guys all figure this out. And so you get the various Greek kingdoms, right? The Ptolemaic Empire, the Seleucids, and so maybe them, but probably the Greeks. And then there's no doubt about the last one. Everybody agrees that the iron is the might of Rome. And then, of course, Rome later, interestingly, divides, right, east and west, and that, that iron mixed with clay is, is likely an indication of this mighty, mighty empire that eventually is divided into two empires. Okay, so we have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. What we're talking about, folks, are the empires that ruled over the Jews from the 500s all the way down to the time of Jesus. Now, let's finish it off. In verse 44 of Daniel 2, this is what he says. And in those days, those kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In the Greek, it's, uh, sorry, in the Hebrew, it's olam, O-L-A-M, means forever, or into the ages. And just as you saw that that stone was cut from a mountain, again, he says, by no human hand, underscoring that this is a small heavenly stone, of divine origin, and that it broke into pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, all of them. And then he ends by saying, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain. The interpretation is sure. The folks, I appreciate you going for me uh, with me on this little journey through these Old Testament passages, particularly here in Daniel, because I think what we're looking at is a fascinating prefigurement of the kingdom of God that comes in Jesus Christ. And I want to just add one more little postscript to our look at Daniel. Just turn with me just briefly to Daniel 7. Because if you have a kingdom, there ought to be a king. And in Daniel 7, and yet again another fascinating scene, Daniel foretells of the coming Son of Man. Here's what it says in Daniel 7, Verse 13, I saw in night visions, once again, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, to God the Father, yes, and was presented before him. Very similar to the image in the book of Revelation where you have the lamb standing before the throne of God. Now watch what it says about this king. We just learned about the kingdom. Now, here's what it says about this coming son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. In the Greek, basileia. Basileia to theu, the kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is another verse that, again, belongs somewhere, I don't know, in your life, on your, in your mirror, and you're somewhere, right? This great prefigurement in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ the king of kings. Nebuchadnezzar, no one's remembering, except in historians and in ICC Bible studies, right? But everybody knows that Jesus Christ is the true king, the king of kings. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. These are the kind of things that St. Paul says in his letters about Jesus, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So that completes our Old Testament background. And it's, again, so fascinating to me, and I hope it is to you, that many of us who've never really encountered the book of Daniel have had an opportunity tonight to go back, to go back some 500 years into the time before Jesus and to study those very words of the book of Daniel, which point forward not just to the destruction of these earthly kingdoms, but to the rise of the heavenly kingdom. We're told a couple of things here that are worth putting in our hearts. And that is that God's kingdom uh, is no match, right? No match, not even close for any of the earthly powers, whether it's the Babylonians, whether it's the Persians, or whether can we just say any kingdom through time. And this even helps us to think about our own context, right? That we are, you know, I think most of us listening here, proud Americans, we love our country, we've just seen a new president, all the change and all the exciting things going on. Certainly it's, it's a lot to be, to, to take hold of. But we are also Roman Catholics. We are also people of faith. And our true home is in the kingdom of God, which is here on earth because of the Eucharistic kingdom that Jesus established. So the king is with us, but we also await his full return, right? As he comes again in glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, turning from the book of Daniel to um, the book of, back to the book of Luke, I want to mention a connection that you may not be aware of between Daniel and Luke as we now turn full force back to Luke. And that is that um, it's, of course, the angel Gabriel that comes in in that infancy narrative. If you turn back with me to Luke, we know, of course, that he is the archangel who reveals this glorious truth to Mary, right? In the Gospel of Luke. Now, the name Gabriel is used in only one other place in the entire biblical canon. In all 73 books, it's only in one other place. And I'm sure you can guess what book I'm going to say. It's the book of Daniel. It's the book of Daniel. And as those, that vision of time, of weeks, as Daniel calls it, is completed, it's Gabriel who again speaks forth. It's Gabriel who guides Daniel, and it's Gabriel who comes to, the archangel who comes to Zechariah when he's ministering at, in the temple, just as he ministered to Daniel. So it's the only two time he, times he appears, and it may be, I think, Luke's way of telling us that time of Daniel, of the expectant kingdom, and the son of man as the Davidic king, is now. It's happening now. And it's game on. It's happening right here in Nazareth with the Annunciation. Okay, we have uh, time for just one more thing we're going to do, and then we'll, we'll, do, um, we'll do some questions. But I want to take you deep now into Jesus's understanding of kingdom. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4. And as you know, all four Gospels have a different way of beginning the story of Jesus. We don't need to rehearse them here. We know Luke and Matthew have the infancy narratives. Mark begins with Jesus' public ministry, and John goes his own way with his deep Logos Christology, right? But let's talk about Luke. He begins Jesus' ministry in Nazareth, and I had the good fortune of going to the synagogue in Nazareth where Jesus actually spoke the following words. Look with me and open your Bibles, please, to Luke 4. Verse 16, he comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, which assumes that he'd kind of moved out of there now, right? And he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, 
And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It's really scroll. And he opened it and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Listen to this passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent to me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to those set at liberty who are oppressed, and to proclaim the jubilee year or the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, what he's quoting from here is from Isaiah 61. And let me just put a little plug in here. If you do not own a, a reference Bible, it's one of the things I want you to put on your list of things to get. What I mean by a reference Bible is a Bible. Now, mine actually doesn't, doesn't have one, so I'm guilty here. But, but you need to have a Bible that has references. Or if you don't, just keep coming to ICC. Just keep coming to these webinars, and, and we'll help you fill in those references in, in pen and marker. But one way or another, you've got to get them in there. Because what you want to do is go back and look at the passage. And I know you're saying, Dr. Smith, give me a break. It's Thursday night. It's 9 o'clock. Why do I need to go back and look at it when it's already there? Let me humor, humor me. Go back with me to Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, here's what you'll find out when you know where it's at. First of all, you'll read the words, which it's always good to do. But secondly, what you'll find is that what Jesus quotes from in Isaiah 61 does not end where Jesus ends. In other words, it's only a small caption of the entire messianic prophecy about Jesus. And in fact, it goes on all the way through Isaiah 61 and into 62 and doesn't end until Isaiah 62, verse 12. So it is a much longer body of scripture text. And my encouragement for you would be to go and read the passage for yourself. And what you're going to find is it opens up that messianic image that Jesus alludes to in, I, in Luke 4 and makes it much more three-dimensional because you get much, much more about this coming ministry of Jesus, okay? That's the first point. Now, what happens after he says this? Obviously, those who are, have faith must be thinking, okay, what's he going to say? Well, let's read on in Luke 4. And he closed the book or closed the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fit, fixed on him. Boy, I bet they were. And he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now watch this. Because what we're trying to ascertain here is Jesus's own understanding of kingdom. Okay. So they spoke well of him. Verse 22. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said to him, is this not Joseph's son? Now elsewhere, um, we have this same question. It was just a couple days ago in daily mass. I think it was Wednesday, yesterday, where in um, Mark 6, verse 1 to 6, we have these same questions. Who is he? He's Joseph's son. This is not simply Luke's way of telling us that they're trying to figure out, you know, his family. As much as I think it is a kind of remark about their lack of understanding of who he really is. By saying, is this not Joseph's son, it seems to miss the obvious of everything that's come before in Luke chapter 1 and 2 about Zechariah and about Mary and the Annunciation. Um, I don't think it, we should surmise that the people of Nazareth were in the dark about all the goings on in their little town. And so it is a kind of a, a little bit of a sideways remark, I think, by Luke that they don't seem to get it. 
But then if we're not sure, well, let's continue on. Because he says to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, which basically kind of, it's hard to understand, but it really sort of means do something physician-like, do something magical, do something miraculous. Show yourself to be a great power here. Do something for us. And as you did at Capernaum, which what they're really saying here is, hey, we've heard about your miraculous ministry. Do a little song and dance for us. Which again, with the Joseph remark, goes to their character or lack or either lack of faith or perception, way of seeing him. Now, here Jesus's tone turns. Watch this. He says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. They're too close to it and they're blind. They can't see who he really is. But in truth, he says, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut and three years and six months and there came a great famine over the land. Now, if you've read this passage before and been confused, I want to take away that confusion or replace it with some clarity. Why is suddenly Jesus talking about Elijah? What does that have to do with Isaiah and the Messiah prophecy and their attitude? Well, let's read on. So, and Elijah was sent to none of them in Israel, but to Zephyrath in the land of Sidon, a woman who was a widow, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time. In other words, there was plenty to do in Israel, yet God sent Elijah to the land of Sidon, outside of Israel. Okay, hold that picture. Then he has a second one. And there were many le uh, lepers in the time of the prophet Elisha, yet none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So what Jesus is doing here is taking us back to two passages from the Old Testament, and the quotes are in your notes. Um, they're found in, um, in the passage here in both 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. They're in the notes on page 6, but let me just break it down for you. What Jesus is getting at is the hard-heartedness in Israel during the time of these two prophets. And what God would often do, folks, back in the days of the Old Covenant, is when Israel was turning away from God, God would do various things to, to bring them low, to chastise them. And in so doing, one of, the, one of the aspects he did with Elijah and Elisha was to send his spirit and send these prophets into other lands, in a sense, to make them envious, to wake them up and say, wow, God's prophets, who are our prophets, are actually doing things, but not for us. He's doing, that, he's doing these things for other peoples, which would have disciplined them. It was a hard truth to swallow. But the people in the, in the time of Elijah and Elisha who heard those accounts would have been astounded by these miracles done to, for the Gentiles. Okay, so what does all this mean? Well, what it means is that Jesus is almost using these stories as a parable. He doesn't tell them it's a parable because... It's not a parable, it's real prophetic history, but it's almost parabolic in the sense that he's like, let me tell you a little story here. But in the story, they are the hard-hearted Israelites. And they understood that because they certainly would have known those prophetic stories, even if they didn't like to hear them. Yeah, we heard those stories. So what is their response? Do they say, hmm, you did a great homily there, Jesus, and you got us stirred up about the Messiah stuff, and you know, you were right. We were hard-hearted. Please forgive us. Let's continue on and throw the confetti and have a party because you're the man. No. Look at uh, verse, verse 28. They're filled with rage. They're filled with wrath. Verse 29, and they rose up and put him out of the city. Do you get what that means? 
we're talking about you're you're out. They put him out of the city. They must have grabbed him or the mob moved him out, whatever, but they take him to the ledge of the city where there was a hill. Now I was shown that hill where tradition says the following was about to take place. They took him to the brow of the hill in the city, which was built, that they might throw him down headlong. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, I don't remember about this happening. Yes, this is part of the Gospel of Luke. And of course, the Father does not allow this to happen because it was not Jesus' hour. Jesus is not giving over a son to a mob. He's going to fulfill his will, not the mob's will. So Jesus dies in Golgotha, right? Not on the hill in uh, Nazareth. But what this tells us, I think, about the kingdom of God is a couple of things. And then we'll get to some questions. First, I think it tells us that even if you're very close to Jesus, I mean, these are Nazareans. And by the way, Nazareth in the time of Jesus was about the size of my neighborhood. Five acres is all it was. Today, it's about 100,000. So no comparison, tiny little town. So in that small hamlet, they certainly would have known the Blessed Virgin Mary and that there was something unique that happened or even if they didn't completely understand it. The other thing that it tells us is that there is a kind of a blindness, even among some of the faithful, to understand what the kingdom of God is really about. In other words, a big message tonight for us is that the kingdom of God is not something that we step into, that we take, that we own. It's a mystery that is given to us as Daniel told us. The last thing I would say, and this is the third point, is that Jesus's understanding of Bastileia tu theu is not limited to simply the Jewish people. It is for the Jewish people, no doubt about it, but it is not only for them. What Jesus is telling them is the kingdom of God is breaking open. And what the church is, is basically the world reconciled to God. That's a quote from Cardinal Jalbert in his book, The Theology of the Church. The church is basically, quote, the world reconciled to God. It's not any one nation. It's not any one people. We saw in Daniel, the coming kingdom of God, right? In Daniel 7, and the, the Son of Man was going to have dominion over all peoples, all languages, all nations. In other words, Jesus was teaching them a very hard truth about the kingdom of God. It doesn't belong only to the children of Abraham doesn't belong only to Israel. And when they heard this, they could have repented and and thought about those inspired scriptures from Kings, Book of Kings, the stories of Elijah and Elisha said, man, we don't want to be like them. But somehow history repeats itself and they kind of follow the same actions as hard-hearted old ancient Israel turning away from God. The kingdom of God is something that pursues us. It's something that comes upon us. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is the mercy of God. But we must open up our minds and open up our hearts in order to fully receive it. In order to fully receive it. Bishop Barron says one of the hardest truths of Christianity is is accepting that we are accepted accepting that we are accepted. What would it look like if those Nazareans understood that what Jesus was offering them was a bigger vision of kingdom that they they could possibly understand? I think Judas was obviously a very confused person, 
But I wonder if Judas was like those Nazareans and like the Zealots, someone who was waiting for a political Messiah. I just wonder, because I, I, I wonder if in the garden what he did in selling out Jesus was hopefully trying to bring about from his perspective a confrontation of these two kingdoms. He heard about Jesus, he saw him doing these miracles and everything else, but he thought, well, when is the time gonna come when he's gonna rise up and annihilate our enemies? They're all around us, this kingdom of iron's all around us. And how, if that's, if that's true, and it's speculative, but if it's true, how sad he must have been when Jesus did not do what he thought he might have done, which is to take the sword. In fact, Peter takes up the sword. Jesus tells him, Peter, put it down. God did not bring the world into creation, into existence, ex nihilo, through violence. That's the pagan narratives of the ancient world. And Jesus Christ does not offer us a partisan kingdom, a small human conception of kingdom. So folks, if we're going to make any progress in our study this week and the next week, we need to do some praying. And we need to ask God to refresh our minds and our hearts, that he would enlarge our understanding of kingdom, that we would accept that we're accepted, and that he wants to accept many more and tell them the good news that they are accepted by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. And Daniel, I think we have... Um, it sounds like a few minutes. I'll let you tell me and us how long exactly, but a few minutes for questions, hopefully. We do, yes. We have uh, a good, good bit of time for some questions. You know, I just wanted to point out one thing there uh, at the end. I was just thinking about Luke as the only Gentile uh, gospel writer, what this must have meant to him writing it, that the kingdom is not just for the Jews. It's for the whole nation, the whole mm -hmm. world. Exactly. So it's, uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you. All right, so questions. Uh, let's see, we have uh, Emmanuel asks, um, in Luke 3, 19-22, I noticed that Herod locked up John in prison just before Jesus was baptized. Why is this? Okay, so the story of John the Baptist is a fascinating one in its own right. What John was doing was basically criticizing the powers that be. You know, John spoke truth to power. And one of the things that we know about Herod and his sons is that they were merciless, right? And so when John the Baptist calls out this powerful king and says, stop being an adulterer for what he is doing with his brother's wife, uh, he becomes now a threat to the political kingdom. And so this is at least a little bit of the story of John the Baptist in miniature, that John becomes a threat. Let me say something else about John. Have you ever thought about why was John out in the wilderness? And what is, he, what is he saying out there? Well, he's out there because that's where God led him, and his ministry is gathering people who are desiring to hear about the coming kingdom of God. In fact, if you open up to Mark's gospel in the beginning, that's how Mark begins. He says that John the Baptist uh, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And let me add this. For the forgiveness of sins... Where did forgiveness of sins happen in ancient Judaism? Well, it happened sacrificially in one place, and that was the Jerusalem temple, in the daily offerings, and particularly during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So forgiveness is a term we're so used to hearing as Christians as being something we practice in our hearts. For the ancient Jew, it wasn't that way. I mean, you were called to forgive, but concretely, 
and objectively, you went to the temple and you procured your offering, right? You bought it, you brought it to the priest, uh, the lamb, whatever it was, and then he offered it on your behalf. That was forgiveness of sins in John's and Jesus' day. So think about this. John is out in the wilderness talking about forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins. What does he say? He seems to be saying, folks, that institution that God gave us and the people who have charged over it are failing us. And what that temple should be doing, which is bringing about forgiveness so people can be reconciled to God, is failing. So there's a whole number of reasons. Not that God had failed, but the people had turned cold. The priesthood itself had become corrupted in Jesus' day. And so John's saying and announcing that a new temple is coming. There is a new place, a new person, in which forgiveness is going to be centered, and Jesus is that matrix of forgiveness. If you just turn quickly with me to the last gospel, John 4, St. John tells us this when he says in John chapter 2, when Jesus does his temple action, Jesus says, right, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. By the way, Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple. He was not against the temple. He loved the Father and loved the temple. But he said, if the temple's destroyed, like if you guys do it, right? Okay, and then, but in verse 21, but he spoke of the temple of his body. He spoke of the temple of his body. And then John adds, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this. Uh, scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it only comes in after the resurrection is full truth. But the idea there is that John's ministry um, was prophetic in the sense that it spoke truth to power in terms of Herod, and then it also, out in the wilderness, was preparing the, for the coming Son of Man who was going to essentially transform that temple, take it up into its ultimate entity, which is Jesus' own body. And of course, that means he is still with us today in the Holy Eucharist. Great question. Do we have others there? Yes, we do. We have uh, someone kind of playing on the the notion of Luke as the historian, the eyewitness. Um, there is no mention of the flight into Egypt in Luke's gospel. It simply says that after they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town in Nazareth. So it would seem that Luke was unable to confirm the flight. Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought about that. I'm not sure if it's a matter of confirming or if it's a matter of, of emphasis. You know, there's a lot of debate, for example, about, for instance, the genealogies. Now, I don't want to get into that tonight, but um, the genealogies in both Matthew and Luke, Pope Benedict has, has said in his little volume on the infancy narratives about the genealogies, that we shouldn't simply read them purely historically. So I want to just clarify that while Luke is indeed the historian par excellence. He's also a theologian. He's not merely a historian. And so the details that he's selecting or omitting, just like the other evangelists, are subject to how God, working with him through the charism of inspiration, is guiding him. Another example of this would be in John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple that I just referred to in, in John chapter 2 is at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it comes in in Holy Week at the end. And that's another puzzle. But the, the Dei Verbum helps us by telling us that the apostles and eyewitnesses were true authors. And this is where, with all respect to um, Islam, if any of you are out there and have family members, God bless them. But the difference between um, Islam and Christianity in terms of inspiration is vast. Um, in Islam, 
The basic idea is that Allah communicates his will through the angel Gabriel to Muhammad, who receives it in an ecstatic vision and writes it down in Arabic directly. So there's no real, with all respect, there's no real personality, right? It's all simply uh, recording. Whereas in Dei Verbum and in the Catholic understanding of inspiration, Dan, every one of these authors has full jurisprudence as an author, as a true author, David, called to select, omit, and rearrange. So when we see these differences, and they are good questions, I don't know why it's not in there, but what I do know is Luke, as a historian, as all the other evangelists, are making prudential choices. And in the end, what we have is this fuller picture, because rather than simple, simply one picture, we have four pictures which overlap, but also provide those, those great questions and those differences. Great. Uh, Mary asks, I've heard someone say, it, say that it's untrue that the Jews expected the Messiah to be a political leader. What say you? Okay, so the question again, what were the Jews expecting in terms of the Messiah? I've got to talk on this, that there were a number of things. They were certainly expecting uh, someone who was going to fulfill and bring back that Davidic kingdom, number one. So that's political, right? They were expecting a restoration of the temple. You can look in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 6, and he talks about, in Zechariah 6, he talks about how the man called Branch was going to restore the temple. That's messianic. And so that would be priestly, or we'd say theological. So we've got political, theological, and we can go down all the lines of prophecy. And what we find is that there's not a, it's really a composite. It's a mosaic, Daniel, of many things. But certainly, it's someone who is going to bring God's own presence in a personal way. I would say that for many Jews, it's not exclusively political, but it's strongly political. Um, in, in, in Ezekiel 37, that image of the dry bones is an image of resurrection. But what that really meant was a kind of political restoration when the Messiah comes so that Israel will be regathered. If you're dead and you're a Jew, God's going to gather all of us up. So it's, it, there's much evidence in the scriptures that tell us that it's largely political. However, however, it's also true, and my friend Brand Petrie's brought this out in several of his books, that there's many writings in Judaism that suggest that the coming Messiah was also going to be not merely a political uh, deliverer, but a kind of spiritual redeeming figure. And so I would say it's a kind of composite figure, and all that converges upon Jesus Christ. Great question. Great. In uh, one minute or less, can you comment on the two-source hypothesis and the allegation that Luke and Matthew copied Mark? Oh, my gosh. Not in two minutes or less, but I'll try to squeeze in what I can here. Um, so, look, here's the bottom line, folks. We don't know exactly how the formation of the Gospels took place. What we do know for sure, what is true, is that there is a literary relationship between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We can't simply say, well, they sound the same because they all are telling the Jesus story. There are correspondences that overlap in the Greek in the exact language, which tells us that there is a written or literary correspondence somehow. So that's clear. It's not just that they sound alike because they're telling the Jesus story. There is a relationship. That's true. But as far as how it came about, people are split today. The popular theory of the two-source hypothesis is that contrary to ancient tradition where Matthew is the first gospel, some have surmised that the Mark, the shortest gospel, was first and that Luke and Matthew copied them. I think that flies in the face, just from my opinion, of the eyewitness testimony, because if you ask it this way, why is Matthew copying Mark 
if John Mark is not present and Matthew is an eyewitness who has access to Jesus's ministry. But from the devil's advocate point of view, from the view of the critic, Matthew is just, again, that's why we get into this anonymous stuff. It's not Matthew, it's just the gospel name Matthew. But if we take apostolic testimony seriously, then we would have to ask why an eyewitness would be dependent upon uh, an external source of Mark, who's a good source, but not an eyewitness himself. The other thing I would say just quickly is that this Q saying source is very problematic. Um, I, I don't really have much more time to go into that, but there's some good books on the subject. One book is called The Case Against Q, where a scholar takes apart this speculative theory. Pope Benedict said in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, what we need now are not more hypotheses. <laughs> so it's interesting about how all this came together. What we know for certain is, as I said tonight, the Gospels are of apostolic testimony. It's not just our church saying it, it's history. It's the witnesses of the church and of history itself, as we looked at earlier in the hour. Well, that's all the time we have for tonight. So thank you all for joining us. And thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Daniel. God bless everyone. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.